I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries, and only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm really excited about my guest today. Murray Banks is a motivational speaker who has inspired audiences to act on audacious goals or to tap into their innate potential to stretch their limits or showcase passion in all aspects of life. Murray Banks started off as an educator. In 1982, he was honored as Vermont's Teacher of the Year for Physical Education, and in 1983, received the Outstanding Educator Award from the National Association AAHP HRD. At the time he was achieving educational honors, Murray was winning his first of four national championships as a triathlete and also working on an advanced degree in educational leadership and co-authoring a textbook. Murray is now a keynote speaker drawing on his teaching skills, athletic success, and business savvy to engage his audience and weave a message that is easily applicable to their own work and personal lives. Murray, I'm feeling super pumped just from reading your intro. Welcome to my show, and thank you for joining me. Oh, you're welcome, Tino. Glad to be here. Super. So, um, first of all, I feel like I have to apologize to you for the non-American enunciation of your name, which is spelt M-U-R-R-A-Y. Uh, pretty easy, you'd think, but my daughter spent the best part of this weekend uh, trying to teach me how the proper way of enunciating your name, because according to her, <laughs> I, I just wasn't saying it right. And so eventually she just insisted that I call you Mr. Banks. <laughs> well, I, I won't accept that because it makes me look too old and authoritative. So <laughs> Murray, Murray is the pronunciation, but Murray and Murray and Either way, it's good. I just cannot wrap my tongue around the, the double R-A-Y there. <laughs> not, not a problem. Okay. All right. Now, now that we got that out of the way, Murray, um, what, <laughs> what are some of the earliest memories that you have of your childhood, and how have these shaped who you have become today? Yeah, wow. Good question. I had There were four children in my family, and earliest memories, gosh, would probably be that we played outdoors all the time. It, uh, rarely were we inside watching television, and I had, uh, my parents were kind of Depression-era tough, strong parents, so you went out to play, and you came in at dark, and we played in the neighborhood, running around, and uh, uh, played a lot of team sports, uh, football, and baseball, and basketball, uh, and I remember riding my bike off in the morning and going to play baseball and riding my bike back in the evening. Um, so it was kind of a, uh, a free, but uh, uh, not tough, but, but you learn to be very self-sufficient. Got it. So in your opinion, how much uh, does our childhood program who we 
become in the rest of our lives? <laughs> well, I was a teacher for many years. And, and for 32 years now, a lot of my presentations are for teachers. And so there'll be a staff development day for the school district teachers. And I'll do a 90-minute or two- or three-hour presentation about effective teaching. And I usually open it with something like, how many of you have ever uh, participated in a parent night where, as a teacher, the parents come to school and you introduce them to the class that you're going to teach and everybody raises their hand? And, and I always ask them, how many of you have ever had a parent come up and say, hello, I'm so-and-so, and my child is in the third period class, his name is so-and-so. And you look at the parent and you think of the child and you say, ah, that explains a lot right there. <laughs> <laughs> that children grow up to be a lot like their parents. And in that, I mean what they value, uh, what they think, what they feel. And, and you may not see it. Well, you know, some parents will say, well, my, my son is 15 and I don't see any similarities in my attitude and his. Sometimes we don't see it until that child becomes an adult, 25, 30, 35 years old. And if they were brought up to be optimistic, hardworking, attention to detail, positive, cheerful, eventually the kids will come somewhat toward that. It doesn't guarantee it. And so that I think that our childhood forms who we are in that the type of childhood you have reflects the way you want not the way you want, uh, the way you may end up living your life. Did that apply to you? So, my, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The fact that my parents constantly said, get outdoors and play. Um, I remember being in a Little League game, and I got thrown out at second base. Maybe I was 12, 13 years old, and I pouted my way back to the dugout, walking, slouching. And when the game was over, my father came up and said, don't you ever do that again, meaning don't pout. Don't whine. If you get thrown out, you run back to the dugout. That kind of attitude of pick yourself up, uh, get back in a game, literally, is, is really important. And, and I remember thinking when my son was in ninth grade, uh, we, I met his teacher, and his teacher said, oh, yeah, your son Steve, he's so cheerful and fun. I really like having him in class. And I remember thinking, really? He's kind of pouty at home. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, eventually, you know, those values came. And so, yeah, I, I think it was a an indirect, your childhood, the way you're brought up by your parents is an indirect but strong influence. Mm -hmm. So you started off as a teacher. How and why did you become a teacher? <laughs> My mom was a teacher. Um, and I don't ever remember aspiring to be a teacher. Uh, and I couldn't, I had no idea what I wanted to do, so I went to a junior college, a two-year community college. At the end of two years, I was a, a very good runner, and I had an opportunity to go to a big university on a scholarship, which was possible but not de definite. And uh, they had a great school in forestry. I loved being outdoors. I loved hunting and fishing and being out in the forest. Uh, or I could go back to my hometown and go to the local state university, live at home. It was a lot less expensive, and they had a great uh, education program for physical education, one of the best in the country. It ultimately came down to did I get the scholarship to the big university or not? It was indefinite. I had to make a decision. 
So I just chose to go back to my hometown where it was a lot cheaper. And I got immersed in uh, teaching physical education, working with children in sports, and I had an affinity for it. So it came down to a 50-50 shot. I picked the right 50. I got it. <laughs> and I realized I was a natural teacher. It was just really easy for me to teach. Plus, I love sports, and I got to teach fitness and physical education. Got it. Uh, and so then can you walk me through then how you went from being a teacher to a renowned public speaker? <laughs> That's a bit even more complicated. Uh, after 15 years of teaching, always trying to figure out a way to be more effective uh, I, in physical education, I began to move away from teaching sports, which for most children in the public schools, well, most children in general, it's just not effective, and I began to teach fitness and wellness and a joy for being physically active. That led to doing a lot of workshops for colleagues around Vermont and then New England about let's get away from teaching sports and teach the joy of physical activity and lifelong wellness and things like that. Um, I began to become a little bit dissatisfied with leadership in my schools, so I began to work on my doctorate in educational leadership, trying to figure out how I wanted to take that. Did I want to be a principal of a school where I had a lot of autonomy and control to make a school a joyful, fun place to to learn? Okay, now this is where it gets complicated, Tino. Stay with me on it. <laughs> we, we, we own an island. And so in the summertime, my wife was a teacher. We would, as soon as school was out, we'd take our two boys and go live on this little island. We were both runners. Every day I would swim a half mile to shore and go for a run. This is in the 80s. In the 80s, the sport of triathlon became prominent. So I would swim to shore and go for a run and come back. And I thought, wow, I could do a triathlon. So I borrowed a bike and did a triathlon, and I won it. And I thought, wow, that was cool. That was really fun. Uh, one thing led to another two years later. Won a big triathlon that qualified me to go to the Ironman Triathlon World Championship in Hawaii. Did really well there. Was one of the top finishers. Came back. Had a chance to get sponsored and race uh, more formally. Get paid to race. At the same time, I was trying to decide whether to leave education and get my doctorate or what to do. So I took a sabbatical for one year to be a professional athlete. Um, work on my doctorate and write that textbook with a professor at the University of Vermont. At the end of that year, I loved it so much, I didn't want to go back to the formalized instruction. Also, because Vermont is a very small place, going to the World Championship, I got a lot of notoriety. Many of my colleagues, and I, you might remember I mentioned that I'd done a lot of workshops for my colleagues throughout Vermont and New England on a different type of teaching, they saw it on TV, saw it in the newspaper, called and said, hey, would you come to our school and do a talk to our students about motivation and goal setting and the triathlon and yada yada. And I did a few of those, and they were very successful. And somewhere in April, I realized, well, I could, I could uh, kind of formulate this into a way to make some money while I work on my doctorate, while I train as an athlete and race. So I, at the end of that sabbatical, I resigned from teaching and started speaking more and more. I think for maybe three or four years, I thought, well, that was fun for a year. Now i got to get a real job. <laughs> and then maybe, maybe three, four years into it, it just took off. Um, I got to give a keynote address at a very large conference 
where people came from all over the United States and they all went back to their state. And the next thing you know, I was getting invited to their conferences and it just exploded. And that was probably in 1988, 1989, somewhere in that range. Wow. And never, never looked back. Wow. So as you may guess, I have a ton of questions swirling in my head right now as a result of just that uh, <laughs> few minutes there. Um, but I think I can best summarize them in two, maybe three-part question. So first part is, are you doing what you're destined to do? And then if so, how do you know when that opportunity arrives? And then the third part of it is, why do some people see the opportunity and not take it? Economics, you know. <laughs> Economics plays a big part of it. Is Let's say someone recognizes they have a destiny or they have a – I would rather say maybe they have a knack or a gift. Why do they not pursue it? Why do they not put everything else on hold and go get it? Economics. A lot of people can't give up their day job to spend one or two or three years cultivating their dream and going for it. It's just very difficult. And so while many people might see something they'd love to do, they can't see the path to do it. And, and that's where my wife Janie comes in. She's amazing in that when it came time, I had a sabbatical, one-year sabbatical. Right. At the end of that sabbatical, all right, back to work, let's go, back to education. And I said, gosh, I just want to be an athlete for one more year. Uh, do some of the speaking, which I really like, uh, keep working on my doctorate. And Janie said, go for it. She was teaching in time. We'll live on one salary. We'll cut back on things, and let's just see what happens. And if it doesn't work, you're a great teacher. You'll get a job somewhere. So for, for someone to have a spouse who says, let's do it, not you go do it, but let's do it, and we'll figure out a way to get by financially, uh, which wasn't too bad on one teacher salary. So I think a lot of people get to a point where they have this dream, but they can't see the economic, they can't take a break from what they do that makes a living to do that. Hmm. Second thing, how do you figure out, how do you figure out what your destiny is? You know, I don't ever remember thinking about it the first 10 years of my career, but I just had a knack for teaching. Um, I didn't teach my subject matter. I taught individual children. When I was coaching, I wasn't coaching my sport. I was coaching these kids individually. And that's really uh, an intuition that you have is to not teach math, if you're a math teacher, to not teach math, but to teach children to desire math. You, you know what I mean? Yes. And, and so the way that was easy to, to translate into a speaking career was that Instead of standing up in front of a thousand people and giving a speech about my stuff, my thing, I always tried to make it applicable to them. So I'd learn a lot about who they are, and then I tried to create a pre presentation around who they were and what they might desire. And, and what that involved, you know, was really unusual in the speaking profession, which was walking that into the audience in a keynote address or a small leadership meeting and asking questions. And when they answer the questions, that says, ooh, I'm going in this direction. So it was a very personalized kind of speaking. And I just I just had a knack for that. It just came easy to me. 
for most speakers, the easiest thing to do is to stand behind a lectern and tell them what you know, because that's safe and it's contained and you can't, <laughs> you can't screw up. Right. To walk out into the audience and ask questions and then let your presentation, you got your goals for your presentation, you're going to get them. But to make the audience feel like they're guiding the presentation, that's scary. It's, you lose control of the presentation. But I, I just had a knack for it. And so when it came to speaking, I thought, wow, this is my thing. This is just, I don't know why, but it's just easy for me. And when I saw that, and this goes to your question, how do you know what your destiny is? When I saw that, it was, all right, how can I figure out a way to make a living doing this? And I didn't know. There was no, there was no one to ask. There was no guide. And so, uh, I've shared with many people for about five years, I came to a fork in the road and guessed and guessed right. I guess it wasn't guessing. It was intuition. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and I, I had an economic situation where that could happen. Janie was teaching school. I was making enough money as an athlete and, um, speaking that we could get by on a, a very simple, comfortable lifestyle. So I had time to figure out that, that destiny. I'm not sure a lot of people have that opportunity. Hmm. So uh, was it a difficult decision to do this or were you, you knew that you had to no. make it work regardless? Yeah. Yeah. Two things, you know, one, that decision was never clear immediately. It was never like I had an awakening. Aha, this is it. I'm going to go for it. It evolved slowly over three or four years. And like I said, I kept getting to a fork in the road. Ooh, wow. I could branch out in this direction. And it took a lot of intuition and kind of visioning, looking ahead. How could this work? Um, and so it didn't all of a sudden happen. Um, until that one speech that led to the many, many other speeches. And I, I just thought to myself, wow. I got to make this work. I got to get a business card. I got to get a brochure. Eventually, I got to get a website. I got to get a video. Um, once I got to that point where I said, wow, if I'm going to make money doing this and make a living, I have to get more formal, more professional. Yeah. Once that happened, you know, it was full speed ahead. Yep. You know, who can help me create a website? Who can help me create a brochure? I got to make this happen. Yeah. Very cool. So even though this comes naturally to you, do you bring the same sort of level of energy to normal day-to-day -day conversations that you would in front of thousands of people? <laughs> I don't think so, but everybody else, everybody else does. <laughs> I, uh, Let's see how I could, I don't know how to integrate this in. I'm just, uh, I'm in the midst of a battle with a pretty advanced form of cancer. Um, three years ago, I was racing in the world championship for skiing in the master's category, by age category, 65 to 70. And I was in Italy racing the top skiers in the world, uh, going for gold in my age group, the whole deal, and year and a half later, I've been diagnosed with this very advanced cancer and just shut me down and had surgery one year, radiation this year, and it just knocked me to what I thought was this most basic level of existence, not energy, vitality, and fitness. And my friends joked that, oh, good, now we can all bike together, or, oh, good, <laughs> now, you can, now, now you've got... 
Now you've got the same energy as the rest of us. Now you're normal. <laughs> and so then I reflected back and I thought, yeah, I guess I do have that same level of energy and optimism and joy in my personal life day to day. And the other thing, you know, I think that's relevant here is that I left teaching in 83, but I've continued to coach in a volunteer coach with community youth programs um, in skiing, mostly coaching skiing, cross-country skiing to young children in our communities. And we've built big ski clubs and big programs for children in Vermont and then now here in my home in Colorado. And if, if I look back and say, wow, how did we start out with seven kids and we ended up with a hundred? And how did we create this? It, it, uh, I, I, I would attribute it to a high level of energy. So whether I'm getting paid a big fee to give a speech at a convention for 2,000 people or coaching 30 little children on skis, I don't know. I, I guess I bring that same energy and enthusiasm wherever I go. I don't think about it. I don't concentrate on it. It's not something I have to be aware of. It just happens. Hmm. Um, I, I got lucky. I got my mom's energy. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. <laughs> um, so just talking a little bit uh, about your battle with cancer, um, do you think that immersive experiences are necessary and translate to finding deeper meaning in our lives? Or do you believe that life just happens, trials and tribulations just happen, so just accept it and move on? Well, I'm struggling to accept it. I struggle to move on because you can't. It's present every day. Um, the residual effects of the treatment are present every day. So I don't know about other people, but for me, there's no moving on. I mean, I can't just put it behind me and go, and I don't know my outcome yet. Um, you know, I've working on two years of treatment now, and so we, I don't know where it's going to end up. Right now, we're, you know, I've got surgery and radiation and drug therapy all behind me. Now we just got to wait and see. So there's no moving on. Every morning I wake up, I deal with the effects of it. That said, yesterday, uh, here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we live at 9,000 feet in the mountains. Everybody around here is fit and outdoorsy. And all my buddies are big-time athletes. They've been great. <laughs> We've been going out mountain biking and hiking and my friend said the other day, I can't believe with the drugs you're on, you're doing this. And I said, I can't imagine not doing this. So I just can't do it at the level I used to do it at. But I can still do it. And so that makes me reflect. Um, we live in this tiny little mountain community and our two sons live a few blocks away, each with their families. Our little granddaughter lives three blocks away. Rather than think about living with cancer, or what's going to happen next year, just staying right in the moment and just living right now and dealing with the cancer. We've got to figure it out every day. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen and what we're going to do. But I don't know, that lasts 30 minutes and then it's like, I got stuff to do today. I got to keep moving. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I don't want to just say, oh, you set it aside and move on. Yeah, boy, it's not that easy. So rather than thinking about how am I going to set cancer aside, I think more about what am I going to do today. Ooh, it's a beautiful sunny day. Let's go for a ride. 
you know, I have a speaking engagement coming up. I've really got to get focused on that. I just try to be a little bit more in the moment and a little bit less in the future. So how, how and why are some people defined positively or negatively by traumatic events? Whoa. Wow. I don't know. I think you're out of my realm now. I can only, I can only share my experience and friends and people, of course, at my age, I'm 69. At my age, I have, I don't want to say a lot, but I have friends who, who are sick and have different illnesses. So I can only talk from our experience. If, if, if you're defined by your illness in a sense of why me? Why, why me? instead of all these other people, boy, that's a pity party and you're going to be stuck. If you define it as, well, this, excuse me for saying this, but this sucks. <laughs> that's fine. Why, why me? And then you get over that in 10 or 15 seconds and say, all right, what do I do about it? Um, I think going all the way back to your first question about our childhood, if people feel empowered, uh, uh, that's a big word. If people feel like they have a little bit of control in their lives, throughout their lives, when they get to adversity, they'll try to figure out what to do about it. And then that might, might not mean, how do I solve this? But it might mean, what doctors do I consult? What healthcare facility? What people can I go to for help? Doesn't mean I do it myself, but um, I think a lot of it has to do with your mental, not just your mental toughness, but your your ability to get past something in a couple of minutes and start planning what you're going to do about it, even if you don't know what you're going to do, but you're looking. Mm. Boy, that was a long, rambling answer to a <laughs> difficult question. <laughs> I'll try to make them easier for you, though, and and also we'll, we'll move out of, into more like sunnier territory. Um, <laughs> Great, bring it on! I'm ready. For that. <laughs> uh, well, but uh, we we can't make the transition too extreme, so I'll kind of gradually get there. So uh, the next question I want to just talk a little bit about is. Um, just talk about a little bit about uh, insecurity and self-doubt. I mean, there's a lot of stress in this world and, you know, from challenging economy and uncertain future, you know, relationship stresses at home and at work, you know, the sheer volume of uh, workload people are dealing with, information and change that's coming at us at a thousand miles an hour. I mean, the list is endless. You know, how can we manage these stress levels and overcome the insecurity and self-doubt that's sort of creeping into our society? Whew. That's two questions. The first is the insecurity and self-doubt. That's one question. And the second question is, um, what do we... How, how do we deal with things like that in our lives? What do we do? How do we change things? So insecurity and self-doubt, that's got to go back to childhood. It's got to go back to parents and upbringing and then eventually to friends um, and, you know, the life that you live. And so we're, all, we're influenced by those things. So some people are brought up in a home that fosters self-confidence. Um, uh, the ability to be tougher, stronger, and other people don't have that opportunity as a child being brought up. So that's, that's probably the original point. So you're, you're working with what you were given, I don't know, the first 15, 18, 20 years of your life. Then, secondly, 
you you look for relationships or work or play that that builds your confidence helps you overcome self-doubt now I can't speak for everybody there's many ways that that could happen for me it was sports and athletics um, and and I can tell you that in Italy at the world championship three years ago in the Ironman triathlon world championship back in the 80s when I was racing I don't think I ever went to the starting line thinking I could win full of self-confidence I remember almost every time going, oh, God, I don't know if I can do this today. Oh, I just don't feel like being here today. This is not my day. Almost always when the gun went off and the race started, within 10 or 15 minutes, I was fine. Um, and so in my work and with cancer, I find myself frequently saying, all right, just get into it. Get to where I'm, where I'm good. This will work out. I'll figure it out. I don't have the answer right now, but I know I'll figure it out in the next half hour, in the next 10 days, in the next six months. Um, you know what I mean? Uh. It's not like you've got it. I feel that successful people, confident people, no, that's probably not true. I look at Donald Trump and I think that's probably not true. Um, <laughs> for a lot of people, uh, I think successful people talk to themselves. They just try not to let other people hear them talking to themselves. So I'm always in my mind thinking, all right, how do I get through this? What do I do next? Oh, how am I going to make this work? Um, oh, I gotta, I gotta tweak this. This is not working. I gotta change this somehow. I just don't know how. I'm not quite sure. And I'll, I'll relate a story. My sons are mountain guides and they take people all over the world to climb big mountains and ski back down. Um, and, I was skiing with them and we were in a very challenging, for me, a very challenging situation. Um, I had a lot of doubt. You know, I look at my sons and I'm like, I don't think I can do this. And they're like, oh, dad, you got this. And I remembered saying, I look up and all I see are, and I can't remember if we were in the trees, and all I see are trees or all I see are crevasses here in the glacier. And uh, one of my sons said, hey, dad, if you look for the crevasses, you're going to go in them. If you look for the trees, you're going to hit them. Mm. You've got to look for the space between them. You've got to look for the openings. You've got to look for what's available to you and go for that. And, oh, my gosh, what a metaphor for your life. So now I'm going to self-doubt, the original part of your question. When I get in a situation where it's like, oh, gosh, I can't do this. I'm not sure if I'm up to this. I always start, I always think, wait a minute, all right, let's start looking for a way through here. Let's just keep moving, keep moving forward, keep thinking. Let's see what comes up. For me, most of the time it works. And I'm able to work my way through something. Uh, and that could be a two-year process of changing my business model so I have different speaking opportunities. It could be racing or it could be getting myself down a mountain through very challenging cliffs and rocks. Um, without splatting. <laughs> so if a person has um, really struggles with self-doubt, I'd think two things. One is um, talk yourself through the process for the immediate future, minutes and hours. Talk yourself through the process for the less immediate future, weeks and months. The second is, Boy, this is a tough one, you know, and it goes back to economics. 
get out of the situation you're in and get in a different situation. For Janie and I, early in our life together, it meant leaving our home in New York, which we were both teachers there, and we had nice incomes and nice house and all that, and we moved to a little rural village in Vermont because we wanted a simpler, slower lifestyle that was less stressful and more family-oriented and outdoor recreation-oriented. And so when I look at people who say, oh, my God, my job, everything's coming at me. We've got so much going on. I'm under so much stress. My first question is, can you get out of that? Can you go live somewhere else? Do you really need that much money? Do you need that job? Do you need to live? You know what I'm saying? You know, Absolutely. You, yeah. You're looking at all the things that cause that, and then you ask yourself, am I giving myself this because of the life I've chosen to live? And again, I, it's easy to say, but it's tough if you don't have the economic wherewithal to leave something to go have a, a simpler, less stressful life. I was actually just uh, having a conversation the other day with somebody, and uh, we were talking about how back in the day, you know, a welder or a carpenter or an electrician could ply their trade for 30 or 40 years, whereas today the, the shelf life of a skill is about five years. And basically, you know, by the time you get done a three-year course in upgrading that skill, that skill is essentially almost obsolete, you know, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. because of the speed at which things are changing. And, uh, you know, basically the essence of our conversation was uh, how people were struggling to keep up with the pace of change. And I think what you talked about is, uh, is very poignant because, you know, you got to assess your options and evaluate, you know, continue to improve yourself and then also look at how you can get out of the immediate situation that you're in. If it is a job, for example, that's, you know, going to be obsolete and so on. And, 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 oh man, well, this is a, this is a, a one hour keynote presentation, you know, so I'm going to uh, try to consolidate it into a, a, a minute. Some people love change. They, they deal with it easily uh, they like stimulation, they like learning, trying new things. Other people are insecure in any kind of changes. It's not that they don't like change in their job in this particular aspect. They're just not comfortable with change. And my wife Janie and I are classic examples of that. We've been married 46 years. Uh, Janie grew up in a home where dad and his four brothers all lived in four houses adjacent to each other and ran a family business. And they walked to school and you know, and, and their life was very contained. My family, my mom was a teacher and my dad was a postman and, and we lived in a neighborhood where we played outdoors all the time and there was a very little oversight in our family as to who was where and what and we were all doing different things. I grew up loving a dynamic situation where you live by your wits a little bit. Janie grew up with everything was predictable, nothing changed, everything was the same. And so here we are, almost 50 years later, <laughs> and I just love doing different things, change, adapting. Well, let's go do this. Well, let's sell our house and move across the butte. Let's do this. And Janie, Janie's like, could we just spend a year doing nothing? Could we just try that? <laughs> and so, so when you look at why some people can adapt and change at the spur of the moment, either their career or their their vocation, their home or whatever, and why some people can't. You've got to go all the way back 
that first question you asked a half hour ago, how does your upbringing affect your your life? Some people are comfortable with change and they can adapt and adjust to the science or technology or profession. Other people, it's just really difficult to change. Put me in my cubicle and let me do my job. Mm. And so what so now we have the question, what about those people? What do you do for them? And it's it's getting out of your comfort zone. I don't like change. I don't like having to adapt. I like being good at what I do. Well, you're going to have to set that aside in today's economy and be a little bit more pliable, a little bit more adaptable. Very true. Very true. The way things are changing these days, you cannot afford to just sit back and, and be a spectator. Um, so, it's a, I, Tino, I got a funny story. This, this is a one-second story. I, I was doing a presentation for teachers, and this was a teacher who'd been teaching, I think she said 34, 35 years, and I just did this 90-minute inspirational presentation to these teachers about, uh, listen, you got to really adapt to kids, and don't teach math, teach children, look at how children live today, adapt your teaching accordingly. Anyway, I finished my speech, and people came up to chat, and this one woman came up, and she goes, well... I've been teaching 35 years, and I can tell you, I love teaching. It's the children today. They're different. I, I love teaching. It's just the kids that make it so bad. <laughs> Excuse me, but children is why you're here. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and what she was saying is kids today are different than they were when I started teaching. When I started teaching, kids you know, came to school. They did their work. They behaved. Now it's different. Mm. And you've either got to adapt or if you don't like the kids, you got to go to something else. Go do something else. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that diversion. <laughs> no, that's that's terrific. Um, so I have a couple of quick questions that I would like to just ask you that uh, if you can just give me sort of off the cuff 30 second responses. So yeah. who are the most influential people in your life and how have they impacted your life and your actions? Uh, my mom first because she was. She was an incredibly gregarious, outgoing, dynamic teacher and person and uh, immensely tough. Tough meaning she never got down. She, she was always just uh, able to muster up the strength to do what she had to do. So my mom, for sure. Um, and I can't give you one friend, but I've had several friends over the year who've over the years who've influenced me and I seem to have a knack for um, picking up the best in people and pulling that into my life. I have a, a friend in particular who's just really caring, loving, outgoing man. He just is really loving to other people and gives to other people and I thought, you know, what a great attribute. I want to be more like that. Hmm. Another friend who's just uh, very outgoing and gregarious and and helpful to people, and he's uh, he's really fun to be around. And I just remember thinking 20, 30 years ago, I, I want to be more like that. I really like that. My wife, Janie, is the antithesis of me. She's quiet. She's gen gentle, kind, loving, gracious. And I look at her and I think, I want to be a little bit more like that. And so um, I would say a group of friends and my mom, Janie, and then a couple of friends in particular who've helped me uh, kind of 
key qualities that I want in my life. Uh, what shapes your thinking and your mindset? Mm. Well, cancer, because now I realize um, my life is not infinite, and so I'm a little quicker to work less and play more. So, so that shapes it. Hmm. My athletic career shapes shapes it. Um, when you do the Ironman and you get seven hours into a nine-hour race, and you got two hours to go, boy, you got to be really good at talking to yourself and looking ahead, being clearly in the moment. So, so my athletic career has really shaped how I think, and and presently shapes how I think. Uh, the the parallels between cancer and the Ironman are really, really intense in that you have to have goals and you have to go day to day, but you also have to be looking forward. You have to be on top of everything every minute to, to keep through. So I would say that would be that athletic component. Okay. Into it. Good segue into my next uh, and final question here is uh, why would you put your body through such intense, like, You've done the Ironman. You've done the, the triathlons. You're in your in your fifties and sixties. You're still going through uh, world championships and competitions. I never said I was the sharpest tool in the shed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I always when uh, if if in the occasional times I speak about the Ironman in my presentations, or when people say, "You did the Ironman." What were you thinking? And I always say it is the most stupid race. Nobody would do it. But I, I never set a goal to do it. I, it wasn't something I aspired to do. I, I won a race that was only three hours long and qualified for the Ironman, which is 10 hours long for me. Uh, and I had no intention of doing it, but I won an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii for two weeks to train, to race in the Ironman. My school district gave me two weeks off with pay to go do it. I wouldn't have done it if those things hadn't happened. And I thought, well, what the heck? I might as well go do it. And so then the question is, why 35 years later am I still doing this stuff? Um, there's a, um, a tremendous joy and sense of accomplishment when you do something really difficult. Um, and the mental... Uh, endurance, mental endurance, not physical, that it takes to do that stuff benefits you greatly in other parts of your life. Uh, and I'll tell you, when you cross the finish line of the Ironman successfully and you've done, you know, really well, whew, there's not a lot in life that can match that. I bet. Holding I bet. my grand, holding my only my granddaughter does. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I'm when I'm at eleven thousand feet with my son skiing some big peak and they go, Dad, you got this, you can do this and I'm thinking, Oh god, I don't know if I can do this <laughs> and then you do it and your son hugs you. Oh, it's it, you'll go right back up there and do it again. Absolutely. <laughs> so you have to you have to you have to look ahead to the joy and satisfaction you'll get when you finish. Okay, wow. I like that. In closing I've got a question that I ask all of my guests. Um, and it goes like this. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? Jeez, Tino, come on. <laughs> That's a tough question. Everybody has oh, on this one. 
<laughs> okay, I'd go back in time and have a conversation with myself. Uh, don't dwell so much. Be, uh, don't wait. It, it was too late in my life, not too late, it was in my 20s or 30s, but I, I became confident and happy and cheerful and outgoing much more later in my life in like my 30s after I had success teaching and racing. So I would say, hang in there. No, no, I wouldn't say that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> That's a tough one. I would say, here's what I would say. Here's what I'd say. Spend more time thinking about other people and less time thinking about yourself. Doing the Ironman is incredibly selfish. The reason I did it three times, I raced seven years and then retired, is it's way too selfish. You have to spend way too much time training alone. I would tell myself, be less centered on things you want for yourself and more centered on other people. That's what I would say. That's that's actually a really good piece of advice to give, especially in this day and age. So yeah. how can people, if they want to learn more about you and get connected, how can they uh, discover more about you? Is this a commercial message? Uh, sure. <laughs> MurrayBanks.com. And, and they're not going to learn much about me or my life. I, I, yeah, because thus far, nobody's done a television documentary or written a book about me. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> not yet, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to find a role in, in that movie at some point. <laughs> so, um, if, you do, if you do, you're going to have to learn to climb mountains and go skiing. You willing to do that? I can ski. Uh, the climbing part, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah. But I'm still, I'm still a, doing like a lot of the blue yeah. and, and green trails, so I don't know if I can do the triple black diamonds and stuff. We we uh we we climbed up a mountain early in the morning, skied back down. We we're having coffee in a shop, and there were some tourists in town who had come to to stay at the resort and you know ride the chairlift and go skiing and all that. And they said, "Wow, you guys are done. You're all sweaty. What were you doing? We're sitting there having coffee." And we said, "Well, we climbed thus and such and and skied it this morning." And she says. Let me see if I understand this. All these chairlifts over here, and you climbed the mountain instead? <laughs> and my friend, who was the man I referred to earlier that I admire so much, we kind of looked at each other and we thought, you know what, let's not even try to explain it. <laughs> yeah. oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. I, w I would not uh, climb if this uh, ski lifts around. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, Murray, it's been a real pleasure having you on my show. Um, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story and your knowledge and your insights. Um, I found your life and your story incredibly relatable. Um, you have reminded me that despite what life throws our way, they are cheerleaders like yourself who every now and again come into our lives and keep us moving past the decision points uh, where we get stuck and uh, remind us that we need to rise back up and believe in ourselves and believe in our ability to create success, not just in our lives, but in the world around us. So I wish you the very best of luck uh, in your fight with cancer. And I would have loved to have had you as my teacher. Uh, so <laughs> please well, stop you know, educating and changing people's lives. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. 
next time on the podcast on the shoulders of giants. I welcome to the show the mayor of Vermont's largest city, Miro Weinberger, who gave up a successful and promising career in the private sector to run for mayor of Burlington, Vermont. We sorted our way through that very uncertain time, and we brought all of those projects in for, uh, we, we got them done. And, uh, and we were just emerging from that period when uh, the Burlington mayor's race uh, was coming into focus and in 2011. And, as, and, and I had throughout this period uh, maintained my interest in, in politics and governance. I had been the chair of the Kittenden County Democratic Party. I had worked very hard on a prior mayoral race of a woman named Hinda Miller and had seen really up close what it took to run for mayor in Burlington. And as that race was coming into focus, it became clear to me, first of all, that um, the city of Burlington was in real financial trouble. Um, the city had come through that recession uh, in a tough place for, as a result of a number of mistakes made uh, back in the late 2000s uh, regarding the airport and regarding uh, you know, Burlington Telecom. And uh, it, w- it was very clear that the mayor at the time was not going to be reelected because of those mistakes. And it was also clear that none of the people who were talking about running really had a financial background. And having lived through the, the real estate crash, um, I knew that I had something to offer to Burlington in working its way out of, uh, out of those financial problems. And, and I didn't think anyone else who was running really uh, had that kind of expertise. And so I thought, you know, it's a good time for me to make a transition in my career in that we were bringing these other projects to completion. Um, and it was also a time when I really had something unique to offer to the voters of Burlington. And I thought it was worth putting that forward. And so I jumped into the race.